As I was thinking about today's message, I was thinking about a bit of a phase that I went through in my early 20s. Uh, I was in a band at the time and a bunch of guys that were believers after church would go uh, on a Sunday night to a karaoke in Kempton Park. Now I'm sure many good jokes start off with karaoke in Kempton Park. Nonetheless, we'd go out, have a blast, have a good time as friends, have something to eat and of course sing karaoke. And if you've never done that, I mean, the goal is not always to just sing properly. The goal is to try and get your friends to sing the toughest songs and for them to fumble themselves. Um, there's a few unspoken rules about karaoke. You never try Queen. You, you just, you, you leave. I mean, there is only one and only. And so we leave Queen to be Queen. So you don't try Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, so we as friends, you see, always try and uh, uh, get each other to do funny songs and whatever and, and have a good old time. Um, invariably, people would get up there. And most of the time, people who couldn't sing kind of knew it. Right, most of the time they're laughing along with everybody else and following the bouncing ball and uh, really struggling what comes next and uh, hitting all sorts of funny notes. But every now and again, there's someone, this is their, the voice moment. All right, this is legit. They're like, man, someone is in the crowd and they're gonna spot me and they are taking this ever so seriously, but they're horrible. And no one's told them, <laughs> their family, their parents told them how awesome and wonderful they are. And now they truly believe it. And they're butchering the song, uh, but they don't know it's right. And those are really cringe moments uh, in karaoke. So uh, the, the one scene that I was thinking about was we were kind of, we had dialed out of some of the singing and we were just chatting as a bunch of friends and we were eating some food. And I heard the song Fields from Gold, Fields of Gold by Sting come up. And I'm like, whoa, you know, Freddie Mercury, you know, but Sting, I don't know if anyone should sing Sting. I mean, Sting is the man and you don't just, you don't just sing Fields of Gold, right? So I was expecting something horrible to happen. And as the guy started singing, it, it, it was amazing. I'm talking about goosebump stuff. I'm talking like everyone stopped mid-mouthful, turned around to see who was singing. It just so happened to be one of my friends. He had snuck away. But now you need to know that, that this guy was part of a band we used to regularly play with. They were kind of a comedy punk rock band called Humphrey the Teacup. Um, <laughs> And he wasn't one of the main singers, he was the drummer. And man, you could never take these guys seriously for five seconds, even on stage. I mean, they used to play upside down and wheelbarrow each other around the stage. And they used to wear those like rowing tights. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, and all we knew about these guys was, yes, they love Jesus, but they also, they love their kind of funny comedy music. But no one knew that this guy, Jason, could sing like that. And the point is this, in karaoke, sometimes we get up there and when we butcher the song, everyone cringes because there's an original. Most of us know what the original sounds like. And when what we're doing isn't like the original, like, no, keep quiet. But then there are those moments when whoever is singing, it sounds so good. It sounds like the original that everyone is just getting goosebumps. Everyone is so blessed. Everyone is so excited by that. And in the same way, if we consider that Jesus Christ is the original for our faith, some of our life songs, we're butchering it. Some of us, we know it, right? We're like, I'm not really taking this seriously anyway. Some of us don't know we're butchering it. But when we look at the original, man, it's a far cry. 
And then there are those moments in our lives and those moments in our friends' lives and maybe you know certain people, man, their song is good. And when you're around them and when they see them do life and marriage and work and personal life and business and even fun, man, something about them is pointing towards the original and it's awesome, beautiful stuff. And so what we're gonna be talking about this morning, you're gonna be so glad you came to church today. We're gonna be talking about those parts of our lives where we're singing out of tune, where we don't know what's going on and we're not pointing well to the original. Now, some of you might say, and even if you're not a believer here this morning, you might even know, but, but Jesus is perfect. We're, we're sinners. How are we ever supposed to be living up to Jesus? Now, here's the goal of being a Christian, in case you never knew this. It's not just to get saved. It's not just to go to church. It's to become like Jesus. It's to literally to follow Jesus, to be transformed into his likeness. And while we will never achieve that, even the Apostle Paul says, man, I'm not even close to getting there. We are striving towards being like Jesus and being transformed into him so that our life song becomes more and more beautiful as our lives point towards him. But if we don't recognize some of the failings, if we don't recognize some of the gaps between the original and us, we're never gonna take seriously our lives in order that we can align ourselves with Him. Watching a TV show the other day called House, and if you've never watched House, this incredible, uh, gifted, intelligent, abrasive doctor. Uh, I sometimes wish I had his personality because he just says it like it is, and he goes home and he sleeps well that night. But this patient comes in, not the main story, but of a side story. This patient comes in and he says to him, well, what's the problem? He says, I'm sore everywhere. Everywhere? Yes, I'm sore everywhere. When I touch my leg, I'm sore there. And when I touch my tummy, I'm sore there. When I touch my head, I'm sore there. So how says to him, there's nothing wrong with your body. Your finger's broken. And if we don't diagnose our sin properly, We can point everywhere else and everything else we think we're touching. There's a problem with that person. There's a problem with her. There's a problem with him. There's a problem with the country. There's a problem with economics. There's a problem with that church. There's a problem with this. If we don't recognize that our own fingers are broken and we don't deal with that, we're gonna be experiencing pain all the time. And so this morning, I hope that you experience as an invitation to become this Christ follower who is heading towards the original. Now, something strange has happened in church in the last 30 years or so. Some of you may have grown up in the turn or burn gospel days. All right, in Afrikaans, dry or dry. Um, The whole gospel was, you know, hell is a really, 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 really bad place. Here's some sort of picture. Here's, you know, here's what it feels like when you burn your hand on a plate. Uh, You don't wanna go there, right? Okay, trust Jesus. And a whole lot of people have come to faith simply because they don't wanna go to hell. Now, Is hell real? Yes. Is judgment real? Yes. But as you've seen in the book of Colossians, the goal is not to somehow get out of hell. That's kind of like a benefit. The goal is to know Christ, right? The goal is to be fully alive to Him. The goal is to walk with Him, to know His love, to be rooted and established in love and to walk from this day forward in love, right? That's the goal. But what has happened is when we've realized that the dry or dry way of preaching is only half the message, the pendulum has swung the other way and we tell you how awesome you are every single Sunday. All right, and, and that's true in many ways. 
And, and we say things like this, God loves you no matter what. And that is 100% true. If Jesus can say to a thief on the cross, seconds before his death, today you'll be with me in paradise because you trusted me, then it doesn't matter what you and I have done. God accepts us into his family when we trust him. Why? Not because you're awesome, not because of your perfect life or your imperfect life, but because of Jesus' perfect life. Man, if you missed last week's sermon, you have to download it. Craig had these boxes up on the stage. The boxes, a box in, a box representing me, a box representing Christ in me, a box representing me in Christ, and all those three boxes in God the Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is who we are. Our identity is one who is in Christ and Christ is in me. I'm a co-heir with Him. I'm a son or daughter, not because I live a perfect life, but because I'm in Christ. But here's the thing. If we stop there, we just sign on the bottom line, we prayed the prayer, finding some sort of lowest common denominator to become a Christian and get out of hell free card, then we are never gonna be pursuing this life of following Jesus. Dealing with painful issues like sin. Dealing with some of the, the ways that God wants to shape us. And you've experienced this, right? It is painful. Michelangelo was once asked, how is it that you make such beautiful sculptures? He goes, oh, no, no, it's easy. I take a block of marble and I chip away everything that is not the horse, whatever the case might be. And that is what God is wanting to do in us. He's saying, I want to chip away everything in you that is not Jesus. And, and we don't like that. It's hard to participate sometimes with the painful process. Man, but God wants to transform you into the life of Christ. He wants you to become fully alive. I just want to hold that before you the whole time so that you know when we talk about some of our out of tune life song singing, we know why God wants to deal with it so that we can all move forward together. So now, Let's read how Paul deals with this. Colossians chapter three, verses five to 10. Colossians three, verses five to 10. We're gonna walk through this, uh, just commenting as we go and learning together. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now let's just stop there. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now something you may have figured out is that when you become a Christian, you don't automatically become perfect. Right, you become a Christian today, you wake up tomorrow with many of the same temptations and urges as you did yesterday. Right, there will come a time, by the way, there will come a time when sin is gone. This is what the Bible calls our glorification. Don't get thrown off by like a five syllable word uh, or four or six, I don't know, whatever. Um, it's a word that describes the time after judgment when we are given new bodies. There's a brand new beautiful creation. God is there in His fullness. And the Scriptures say there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more sin. We've got these beautiful bodies. We're in this beautiful new creation. We see Jesus face to face as He is in His fullness. That is our glorification. In that time, sin is gone. But we're not there yet. One preacher put it this way. He said, when we trust Jesus for the first time, God removes the penalty for sin because Jesus has paid for that on the cross. Then when we walk with Jesus, God is removing the power of sin in our lives. And then one day when we're glorified, God will remove the presence of sin in our lives. But we're living either in the first P or the second P 
all right? Where once we followed Jesus, we've decided we've been made new, we've been put in the box, He's in us, we are in Him, sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're all in God the Father, that is our identity, that is who we are, we still land up sinning. And God is wanting to actively remove the power of sin in your life. And this is a process that we can work with Him in or we can work against Him And let me just say, when it comes to this, there's no neutral zone. If you are in neutral gear, you are working against Him. And therefore, we're gonna see the nature of the verbs in this text are inviting us to actively participate with this process whereby God is making us more and more like Him. Now, This is something we need to daily choose because we've got this new identity. God has breathed a new nature in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. Christ is in us. We are given this new nature. The Scriptures call it the new man, the inner man. Christ in us. Our spirit is made alive. We are born again. These are all phrases which mean roughly the same thing. But the old man is still there. The sinful nature is still there. And therefore, Paul says, what do you need to do? Let me just quickly say, this sermon is like a part one. Next week's gonna be a part two. We're gonna talk more about this in the part two. There is stuff that God does and there's stuff that we need to do. It's a great mystery, but there's stuff that God does. So far, we've spoken a lot about what God has done in Christ, the victory on the cross. Man, God has given us Christ in us. We are in Him. We are secure in Him. Our salvation is secure in Him. But what these verses are gonna talk about today is what you need to do. We cannot be in neutral gear when it comes to this. So these verses say, the first thing is this, put to death. Now we've got this tendency in social media days, uh, even before that when we had posters and things on our wall is, is to take a sunset all right, or some puppies or some rainbows. We stick a verse on there and we feel all nostalgic inside as we read this verse and we're like, ah, put to death therefore the sinful nature. Uh, no, have you ever killed anything? I mean, I'm like, like, have you ever caught a fish and had to kill it? Have you ever shot something? Probably the best scenario, have you ever tried to take out a park-time prawn? They say cats have no, nine lives. Park-time prawns have like 21,000. I, I don't know how it works. So that's probably the best metaphor because you spray them with doom and they're like guts coming out. And the next day they're still there. So you've got to kill them the next day again, flush them down the toilet. They come up another toilet. And that's kind of how it is with our sinful nature. This is not some nice little Christianese thing. We need to be putting this thing to death actively participating with God in the power of His Spirit to participate in what is theologically true as we've seen so many times in this verse. Since you've died with Christ, that was true of you. Now you need to put to death your sinful nature and it's not gonna be pretty. Your sinful nature like that parked down porn is gonna come back tomorrow and you're gonna have to put it to death again And this is something, it's an imperative, it's a command. This is blood and guts as it doesn't want to die and we need to wake up tomorrow and do it again and again and again. So that's how these verses start. Let's continue reading. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality. Now, just as I go through, there's uh, kind of two lists of sins in this passage uh, that we're working on today. There are gonna be some sins where you're like, those are sinful, those are ugly, those are dirty. Right, and there are gonna be kind of more obvious sins, sins that are obviously uh, uh, um, 
clear to you, clear to you about yourself, clear to you about others, then there are going to be sins that are not as obvious. They are not going to be obvious to you and others. They're not going to be as obvious to you and yourself. All right, we call these blind spots. And, and I'm just hoping that as we go through this and as God, this great um, design and artist is working in our lives, that he shows us where he's wanting to work. All right? And, and by the way, this whole list of sins are kind of seen in the same light in so many ways. So let's go through this. There we go. Because... Uh, Verse three, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lusts, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Because of these obvious sins and because of these, some of these are socially acceptable sins, not just out there in the big bad world, but often in the church, some of these sins have become socially acceptable. Because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Now, the wrath of God is not a topic that gets a lot of airtime in church these days for the reason I spoke about earlier. We don't like it. It doesn't make us feel comfortable. It doesn't make for a nice click and share meme, right? It doesn't make me feel wonderful and feel like, you know, just having a wonderful prayer time. No, no, it makes us uncomfortable, the wrath of God. You see, what has happened as we've kind of moved away from the dry of bright kind of preaching and we've moved towards speaking about God's love, which I absolutely believe in. When the Bible says God is, it says God is love. And I believe Paul wants us to know and experience the love of God in Jesus Christ. But what happens in our language, we've sentimentalized the word love. So we say, I love ice cream. Oh, I love Jesus. I love, you know, strawberry milkshakes. And I love Jesus too. And when we look at the nature of God's love, it's a gritty, sacrificial, committed love that suffers for the other. But if we don't get that, then we talk about the sentimental love that makes me feel so wonderful and squishy. We read a verse that talks about the wrath of God and I just want to move on. Either some of my brain filters it out so I don't even go there or I actively choose not to even engage in the wrath of God. Here's something that we need to know about love and wrath. These are not mutually exclusive terms. In fact, true love demands wrath. If you love the patients, you're gonna hate the cancer eating the patients. If you love your child, you're gonna hate some of the qualities that naturally come out of them that you know are destructive patterns of thinking and behavior. So because you love, you're gonna experience wrath. Right now, some of us hear wrath and we kind of picture God having a massive temper tantrum up in heaven every time we commit a naughty thing. And that's not what it's like. It's not like God is up there and it's like a mom and a child or a dad and a child and the child eventually crosses the line and the dad just loses it. No, God's wrath is like his steady state committed posture of hatred against sin. God is not losing his mind. Because he loves us and because he knows what sin does more than you and I ever know, because he knows how it separates us from him, how it manipulates our desires, because of how he knows what it does in our marriages and in our relationships and in our churches and even in our own selves and even in our psychology, because he knows that sin brings death, sin brings separation, he hates it because he loves us. Now the gospel is this beautiful message 
that Jesus experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. So if we are in him, Jesus accepted that wrath. But we as God's children will still experience the discipline as God shapes us to become more like him. And what we need to recognize is that God's wrath is against all the sin because God knows what it does in your life. And we need to recognize this posture about him. So let's just read on and towards the end of the passage. He says this, you used to walk in these ways. You've just looked at this list of sins. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And we're gonna just unpack this as we go. So God, again, is wanting us to participate with his work in our lives so that we can be transformed into the image of Christ. All right, and I know at some time, uh, this is gonna feel like the game of whack-a-mole. I don't know if you played it at Goldridge City or any of the other game senses where you whack the one mole, another one comes up. Whoa, whoa, got him. Oh, another one comes up. And, and then you, that's what it's gonna feel like as you deal with something in your life, something else is gonna pop up. And then you're gonna deal with those two things and then something else is gonna pop up. And it's gonna feel like, does this never end? And the answer is, it will end sometime. But we even see in the Apostle Paul, I mean, he goes on and he lives this incredible life, but he even considers himself a sinner. If he had to speak to Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, in their 80s and in their later age, they would still consider themselves just realizing how truly wicked their hearts are. And it's almost like the more mature we become in Christ, the more aware of our sin in our lives that's gonna be. And that is grace. That is an indicator that you are growing in Christ because you're walking with him. His light is shining in your life. It is showing up those shadows. It is showing up those places in your life that do not look like him. That is grace. So that we can invite him to work in those spaces. We can look back at the gospel. We can look back and see that we're in the box and we can go from that place. So as we talk about participating with God and dealing with our sins, again, we're talking about what we do. We've spoken a lot about what God does. In this passage, there are three assumptions about what we are doing. There's actually assuming that we're not taking this easily, that we're not in neutral gear. It's assuming that now you are a Christian, there are things that you are doing. So let's try and align ourselves with these assumptions which come very clearly out of the text this morning. And the first assumption is this, is that Paul is assuming that you have embraced new desires. Now, where does that come from? It actually comes from last week, but I have to bring it up because we cannot talk about this week without being reminded of last week. In verse three, verse one, sorry, chapter three, verse one, it says this, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts, things above. Verse two says, set your minds on things above. Verse one says, set your hearts on things above. You see, if we simply started looking at a list of sins, the things of, uh, a list of things that we should not do, the kind of the naughty list, and all I was saying this morning is our starting point is just stop doing these things and start doing these things. If we're honest with ourselves, we're gonna look at this list and go, but I like that list. And I heard one pastor say that if you don't enjoy sin, you're doing it wrong. There, there is a reason why sin is so enticing. 
we actually believe that it is often the best way. We often believe there is greatest joy in the sinful choices of our life. And here's the problem. If I don't let my desires be transformed, I'm gonna look at this list, which is where my desires are. I'm gonna look at this list as if it's like a wet blanket on fun in my life. And I'm gonna go, what? And some of you have tried this. Some of you have tried to get rid of sin in your life. Your desires haven't been transformed. You look at this list, you don't like, you're like, I don't want any of that. And then you land up going back to this list. Because that's where your heart is. And what we need to be doing is intentionally setting our desires, being transformed by our desires that I desire the things of God. Some of you, and again, I know you know the right things to say in church and the right things to say in life group, but let's just get honest with you, with yourselves. Even if it's just between you and God or you and your, your phone as you write these things down or journal these things out. Some of you don't want righteous lives. Your desires are not there. You don't want to be around other Christians. You don't want to pray. You don't want to know God's word. You don't want righteousness. What you really want is these things, right? Don't put your hands up. I'm just going like, and I know that's true because so often that's me. And I've had to, as a point of discipline, fix my heart on things above. Lord, I do not want this in my life. And he suddenly talks about Discipline. Discipline is saying no to what I want now for what I want most. And saying, okay, I won't want these things now. But if I look five minutes ahead, five months ahead, five years ahead, I see there's destruction in my life. So I don't want these things. Something in me wants these things, but I don't want these things. What I want is to know you, Jesus. What I want is to live in the light. What I want is to know the grace of God in my life. I wanna be shaped by you. And I've gotta preach that to myself. And I'm gonna pray that till I start to actually believing it and my desires are transformed. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this and one of the ways he wrote this is he says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Guys, if we're gonna be killing sin, we need to become convinced that what God wants for you is greater than what you want for you and what the devil wants for you and what your sinful nature wants for you. And as good as some of these things feel now, You've got to trust God has perspective on these things whereby He knows what it does to your heart, what it does to your relationships. And when He says cut it out, it's an act of trust. God, you know best. And I want what is best. Thomas Chalmers, one of these great pastors and theologians, he calls this the expulsive power of new affections. And if we just try to cut this stuff out of our lives, we're never gonna change. But man, when I started to taste and see that the Lord is good, and when I started to trust His ways, and when I started to trust Him in my finances, and I started to trust Him in my sexuality, I started to trust Him in my identity, I started to trust that the boundaries He has for me are not to stop me from having fun, but to lead me towards freedom. When I become absolutely convinced at a heart level that that is the God who loves me, and I have these new affections for Him, as I know Him and walk with Him, 
A lot of these things start just taking care of themselves. So assumption one is that we are going to be embracing new desires. Assumption two is that we are going to be discarding old ways, that you have discarded old ways. Where do we see this? Let's look at verse seven. It says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. And halfway through verse nine, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self. Notice it's an assumption. It's assuming this is the life you used to walk in. There's actually a BC and an AD in your life. Some of us, again, we want to hit the lowest common denominator for faith. Get out of hell. Get to heaven. Done. Saying, no, no, no. There's actually a time where you used to live in a certain way. Jesus came into your life and now your ways are different. AD, after Christ. Now, as we try and understand this, uh, notice what's not going on in this text. What's not going on in this text is, oh, you're a brand new Christian. Oh, shame. Shame, pre you. I know you love these things, so you know we're gonna be really gentle. We're gonna take the dummy away from you slowly. We're gonna move you slowly into faith because you know we don't want to make you uncomfortable. We don't want to move you too quickly. No, it's saying Christ comes in. He brings about a radical cosmic transformation that lasts for eternity. Something needs to change in my life. You used to walk in these ways and the ways in which you once lived. You've taken off your old self. See, some of us go, well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I prayed a prayer of repentance in high school 30 years ago. Well, what do you mean? No, no, I said, I'm sorry for my sins. Oh, what does it look like? No, I prayed it in a prayer 30 years ago. The Christian life is not that you repented 30 years ago, it's that you've been repenting every day since then. That every day since then, you are embracing new desires. Every day since then, there is a BC and you're choosing the AD. Every single day since then, there is a way you used to walk in. You are choosing against that and you're choosing for what God wants for you in your life. That is what repentance is about. We become convinced that God is true, that God is life, that God wants stuff for you. So when he says, cut it out, we believe him. And that is going to be the ultimate kind of litmus test that what I did pray 30 years ago was genuine and not just the motion I went through to please a girl, please my parents, right? Some of us are happy to pray the prayer of St. Augustine that he wrote tongue in cheek where he says, Lord, grant me chastity and self-control, but just not yet, right? Notice the, in this text the decisive language of discarding these old ways. Put to death. Rid yourselves. Take off. This describes an ongoing commitment to wage war against the sin in your life as you participate with the Spirit of God. Now the next part I want to say so gently, but I feel like I have to say it. And not because it's something I thought of, it's something that's very clear in the scriptures. It comes out in a number of different ways. The reason why I wanna say it gently, I don't want anyone in this room to feel unnecessarily condemned by what I'm about to say. But there may be someone, two people, five people, there may be no people in this room for whom this is gonna apply. And I've been praying that God is the one who rocks up, that God is the one who applies this into our hearts. But for some of us, 
maybe even for one of us here this morning, if we look at the list of things that God says, this is dangerous for you, this is life taking, these are the things that need to come out of your life. And if we look at the things that God wants for our life, some of us, if we look at this first list and we say, wow, those are the things I really want. And we look at the list that God wants for our lives and we say, those are the things I don't really want. For some of us, that may mean that you are not a Christian. And I know that feels like probably the most offensive thing you've heard ever from this stage. Jesus says, Matthew 7, on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, in the minds of the people coming before Jesus, I'm a Christian. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. There's another verse, 1 John 2 verses 15, that says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when it talks about the world, it's not saying do not love the Drakensberg, do not love the ocean, do not love coffee, do not love good graces in your life, do not love playing golf and sponsoring golf days. We recognize all of these things are good gifts from an even better gift giver. And the right way for us as Christians is to enjoy the good gifts God gives us and to even more enjoy the good gift giver, right? He's not saying don't enjoy those things. When he talks about the world, do not enjoy the world, he's talking about that which belongs to the sinful world, that which belongs to the sinful nature. And if we, in front of God, do an analysis of our heart and we realize I actually love the world way more than I love the things of God, Maybe, please hear me, that means that the love of God, which transforms your loves, is not in you. And I pray that you hear this not as condemnation, but as an invitation. The lights are on. You've got an opportunity this morning to come to God for realsies, all right? To get in the box, to have God's power and His Spirit in you, to be transformed and to embrace the path of following him. The third assumption is this. The third assumption is that we are implementing new behaviors. We see this in verse 10. So we've taken off the old self, and now verse 10, and you have put on the new self. The second part is so beautiful. This new self, this is something that God is doing. We're doing the putting on. Here's something that God is doing, which is being renewed. He's breathing new life into your new self. This is where His grace is. This is where His work is. This is where His life is. This new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Again, we can't say no to this list without putting in new behaviors that lead us towards life. It's kind of trying to cut out sugar and carbs and not finding anything tasty to eat and replace it, right? How long is that diet gonna last? There's only so much raw kale you can drink. Right? You gotta find ways of eating what is healthy and enjoying it so that you can stay the path. Again, this is something God wants for you. See, some of us, we're sitting here, we want God to bless us. We just don't want Him to transform us. It comes down to who we think God is. What we think, when we're really honest, God has for us. So the assumption is we're not gonna just stop doing some things. We're gonna embrace new habits, new lifestyles, so we can move towards the life God really has for us. 
I mean, if we're honest, again, let's, let's see how hard this is. We, we go to verse five. And we look at some of these lists, some of the things on this side. Sexual immorality. Oh, we like sexual immorality. We actually do, right? Impurity, lust. We like fantasy, evil desires, greed. We, we love our things. Oh, God calls it idolatry. I don't care. I love it. And we go on and it talks about lying. It talks about anger. We love our anger. Dr. Full, you know, he always asks that question, what do you get out of it? We get something out of our anger. We feel good when we release it, Right? Rage, malice, slander, filthy language. And if we just try to get rid of these things without putting in and embracing and implementing new behaviors in our lives, we will always go the easy route and find ourselves back here. Now, I believe that one of the biggest cultural idols that stops us from putting on the new self and taking off the old self is this. There's some truth in it. But this cultural idol that says, just be yourself, right? Be yourself, just be authentic. As long as you're being yourself and as long as you're being authentic, man, we celebrate that. The world celebrates you. But the minute we seem like we're not being ourselves and we're not being authentic, then we're ridiculed and we're cast aside, right? I was even reading a secular, uh, just a a very non-Christian perspective on this. And it was saying, be yourself is the worst advice ever. Because what does it mean? Which self? The self that wants to lie on the couch all day and eat ice cream? No, I'm being myself. The self that wants to say whatever comes into your head? Someone else, no, that's just me. I'm just being myself, Right? The self that just gets to express whatever it is you feel like doing. And you say, no, 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 it's okay because it's this holy cow. I'm being myself. The Bible says, put off yourself and put on the new self, which by definition is new things, things that do not naturally come to you things that do not authentically come to you. You're gonna be putting on Christ. You're gonna be putting on new ways of thinking, new ways of behavior. The study of neurology and neuro-linguistic programming will show us that this is how we actually become transformed by thinking in new ways, by patterning our thinking and habitually thinking in new ways and eventually we become these new ways. So we, in participation with the new work that God is breathing into you, we participate with Him to become a new self, not an authentic old self. Here's the irony of it all. And in case this sounds like such bad news to you, it is the best news in the world. Why? Because Jesus says, if you try to hold on to yourself, you lose yourself. But when you give yourself up, for me, you find yourself. The irony is when you stop thinking about being authentic and we start singing the song of Jesus and we start trying to live like Him, we participate with the work of His Spirit in our lives. We participate with Him chipping away of things. We actually transform our thinking and our patterns of behavior. Something is happening here at the end of verse 10. This new self is being renewed in knowledge in the image of His Creator. And I fully believe the more we embrace Jesus and put on Jesus and be authentically Jesus, the most 
beautiful you comes out automatically. The areas in your life where God is uniquely breathing new life and power start shining. Not because you're being authentically you, but because you're being authentically Christ. And somehow in that, you become the most beautiful, powerful version of you. But now it's no longer about you. It's always about Jesus. There's something so incredible about that. So as I start wrapping up, I recognize that some of us are sitting here saying, this sounds like a lot of hard work. Aren't we under grace? All right, aren't we under grace? Meaning, don't I get to do whatever I want and then go and pray? I pray of forgiveness at the end of the day. Slate is wiped clean. And Paul will say, if that's our mindset, we've missed grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke about the fact that when we see lives that aren't being transformed, it's because we have this concept of cheap grace. The grace is just like God signing a check up there without recognizing the cost to himself. But when we see what it cost God to forgive us, we become so grateful. We become so convinced of his life that we do not accept this cheap grace. We pick up our crosses and we follow him. And we sing that song. You see, grace isn't opposed to effort, but grace is opposed to earning. The difference is this. Man, if I kind of sort myself out and come to God, maybe he will accept me. That's earning, and grace is opposed to that. Grace says, no, you don't try to sort out your wounds before you go to the hospital. You come broken, and then you receive health. We come to God broken and He gives us new life and grace. But then there is effort on our part. And I'm afraid that for so many of us, and I know it is true for so long in my own life, that I was living in the cheap grace side of things. And I wasn't actively putting off. I wasn't actively ridding. I wasn't actively putting to death and walking towards the life that God has for me. And that is an invitation for every single one of us. So here's a big diagnostic question as we think about this. The big question is this. When we look at those three assumptions that come out of this text, embracing new desires, discarding old ways, and implementing new behaviors. On a scale of one to 10, where are you on that? Really, like, how much do you want those things in your life? Just be honest, no one's recording you. And even if you told God at eight, but you know it's a three, he knows it's a three. So just, let's get honest. Lord, actually, I don't know if I want new desires. I'm at three. Maybe you're like, you know what, Lord, I really want these things in my life, but, but every now and again, my desires get confused and, I, and I'm a seven. And that's That's great. Here's diagnostic question number two. If you're a seven, why aren't you an eight? And again, I'm not saying why aren't you an eight. What do you assume about God? What do you assume about grace? What do you assume about what he wants for your life that keeps you locked at a seven and not in an eight or a nine? Because I can guarantee you there's a lie in there. There's a misbelief about who God actually is in there. We need to reorientate our minds to what is true. You're a five, why aren't you a six? 
moments of truth. I'm going to pray for us. Again, I'm going to pray that we hear this invitation to follow Jesus, that we hear this invitation to sing his song. We hear this invitation to embrace these powerful, beautiful ways in which our lives more reflect him. But it is also going to embrace this journey of killing, dying, ridding yourselves on, And so Holy Spirit, as we really try and be honest and vulnerable with you, Father, help us see where we're at. Help us see the truth of where we're at. Help us be honest with our hearts, with how we see you and how we see the things of God. And Father, I pray that even as we have this very candid moment with you, help us on one hand see those things which are destructive in our lives, those attitudes of heart and those desires which are preventing us from moving towards the sevens and the eights and the nines. And Father, help us experience the invitation. Help us look up and see Jesus in new ways. Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us in new and powerful ways, God. While we're doing mud pies and slums, help us in our imagination realize just how good you are and how good the life you have for us is. Give us a yearning in our hearts that is new, that is a gift. Seed that in us, breathe upon it. in the silence take notice of what God is doing what he's saying what we're going to do next week we're going to get more practical we're going to find ways just to move forward together but Father God do not leave us alone in this increase our desire increase our awareness of our sin, but also of the life you call us to. In this coming week, alert us to new things in Christ, to new things in God. And only you can do this, Holy Spirit. So we pray this together in your mighty name. Amen, amen.